good morning, those that have joined us today in person and online. I am Deanna, I'm one of the pastors here. If you've been with us the last few weeks, you realize that we've been going through our Finding Peace series. And as we wrap that up for you, we hope you found it helpful as we help try to equip you to um, navigate those mental and emotional challenges that also come with that spiritual component that we face by being human. And we know that scripture has many biblical insights and wisdom for us that is as relevant today as it has been through the centuries, thousands of years, and it will be into the future as well. If you've missed any of those sermons, you can find those on our channels. You should be familiar with those now unless you're just new with us. But check those out and catch up. I know our life groups are unpacking them further. So if you're part of a life group, you'll be continuing to talk about those. But today we're gonna do things a bit differently as we focus on the reality of grief in life. What an exciting way to end a series on peace, huh, grief. And in fact, I was questioned about that by the team and I said, no, no, it'll be okay because we have hope for grief. So we're gonna talk about that today. I have a special guest that will be joining me. But sometimes it's hard to find peace when we are grieving. But as Christians, we know that we have hope past this life thanks to Jesus. We've sang a lot about Jesus today and the power of his resurrection. But I draw great encouragement from the shortest verse in scripture, which is this one. Now many of you, if you're not familiar with scripture, you may not be familiar with this verse. But it gives me encouragement because it reveals so much about the humanity and sets an example that Jesus set for us, that it's okay to cry. We're gonna talk about that a bit today, finding peace, but it's still okay to cry. We often get unhelpful messages when we're going through sorrow. Jesus actually said this at the grave of Lazarus. Now those that may be familiar with that passage know that uh, Jesus came a couple days late, Lazarus was already in the grave, he had been called, and he was to raise him from the dead, and yet he still wept. And theologians will debate about why that is, I'll leave that for you to dig out in your life groups, but the reality is that we had a, a savior who knew how to cry. And I think as our example, what we try to do, we try to avoid this as people, and we often give platitudes, they're always offered with perhaps the wrong timing, or with good intentions but a lack of understanding about what it is to feel deep anguish and sorrow because they haven't yet experienced that. Our cultures um, can be a real um, element of how we express or feel grief. In fact, I was talking to my daughter-in-law just yesterday. We were comparing notes uh, from a couple different trips that we've made in South Asia. And she says, well, in this country, they don't even let the women go to the cremation ceremonies because cremations are done as a public event out in the open and we saw that on our recent trip to South Asia. And and she said, were there women there? And I said, I don't know, I didn't really pay attention to that. It was a public place, there were people everywhere, there was a lot happening. Uh, And and so I I looked back at my photos and I, I blew them up and it's like, oh, I don't see any women there. So it must be the same in that culture too. But some cultures, uh, she said, yeah, they were said that, she, she said, I was told that women show too much emotion so they're barred from those ceremonies. And I thought, hmm, that's interesting. So even our genders can play into a, our experience, our expressions of grief. Our personalities certainly color that. If you're more of a neurotic personality and that's not a negative, it's just a descriptor, uh, you feel your emotions much deeper so therefore you'll be, your expressions of grief might, grief might be deeper 
And plus, in Western, we know in Western societies, we kind of isolate it and hide it away. Um, it's even different between America and Australia. In America, I'm used to seeing coffins open at funerals. Here, they're often closed, or mostly closed. So we, we have different ways of, of sharing that grief and experiencing that together. And we are too often guilty of comparing our pain, the pain that we're feeling with somebody else's. Well, you're hurting, yeah, but if you knew how much I have experienced, because the reality is we are all experiencing pain through this life, and we're gonna talk about that briefly, but the reality is grief and pain is a unique journey that's unique to us as individuals because we're unique individuals. So as I reflected back over my own life in preparation for this talk, and I looked at all the, the um, psychology stuff, I did a lot of reading and thinking about this and contemplating it, I realized that I grew up in a family that was profoundly impacted by grief. You know, I knew this, but I never had paused to ponder it like I did this week. You see, my maternal grandmother, my mom's mom, was a widow before the age of 20. You may be thinking, wow, a lot of people aren't even married by 20. She was married at 15, and I think she was widowed about 16, at 16 years old. She was left with a little child. Her husband had been hit by a train. He died in her arms. A few years later, quite a few years later, her youngest son, she had five children, was in a serious car accident at the age of 18. He had just turned 18. He had a bad car accident. He had much brain damage. It left him alive but disabled for life. He is still living today. He, uh, he had a family of his own, um, but now that evidence of that brain trauma it has made itself very clear in, in dementia and blindness. But, she went through that, that grief experience of uh, nearly losing her son. And then she died suddenly at 56 from a massive heart attack. I was only four at the time. My mom was 30. And she never did get over missing her mom. In fact, I just talked to her yesterday. We celebrated American Thanksgiving as a family yesterday. And I rang my mom. And she's back in the US. And she's 81. And she says, I still miss my mom. 81. She's lived more of her life without her mom than she lived with her mom, but she was so close to her that she still feels that sadness around August when my grandmother's birthday was and also the anniversary of her death. Growing up in that house, my mom cried a lot. I always heard her crying and my dad would get grumpy with her because um, her bladder's in her eyes, that kind of thing. And uh, dad gave her hard time, because he'd grown up in a pretty stoic family. He came from tougher stock. My uh, maternal grandmother lost her mom when she was only three. She and her little sister were shipped off to family out west. We were uh, in Indiana. She was shipped out west as a little three-year-old because her mother had died. So their family was pretty tough. And she gave birth, when she married my grandfather, he was 10 years older than her. And they had 10 children. Can you imagine that today, 10 children? My dad was number eight. And then, you know, so in a big family like that, my grandfather, because he was older, he died in his 70s. And when our family, our giant family came together, all the aunties and uncles and cousins, um, brothers and sisters, it was like a family reunion. It was a it was a happy time. It was, I got to meet a family that I don't, didn't see very often. So funerals, to me, at that time, I was probably about 11. It was like, this is a good thing. This is a happy time. It wasn't until just two years later when my dad's youngest brother, younger brother, he had two younger brothers, 
died suddenly of a brain aneurysm. He had gone to church, he had led worship, he had taught Sunday school, and he went home with a headache and he died that afternoon of a brain aneurysm. He was 36. He left behind a wife and two young teenage children, my cousins. That was the first time I think I ever saw my tough dad cry. In fact, it was such a shock to me because, you know, he always gave mom a hard time about her tears, and yet at this funeral, he just burst into tears, and I'm like, what is going on with my dad? This is weird and scary. He was only 39 when his brother died. You know, and then as a newlywed, if we fast forward a bit, I married Stan quite young, and it was seven years, or seven years, seven months after uh, we became husband and wife, we got a phone call about six in the morning saying that his dad had collapsed at the age of 42 of a massive heart attack, and he wasn't, he died. So we, I saw my husband then go through that deep mourning. Now my parents are both still living, so I have not lost close family members myself. But I want to talk about the reality that we often think of grief only when it's connected to death. But grief is not only about death. It, the reality is that loss is so much a part of our lives that it, the Webster's defines it that anything or anyone lost causes grief. So that there's a lot of reasons for us to go through this life and feel sadness. In fact, the longer you live, you, you, you kind of pile grief upon grief upon grief and we carry this big burden of grief through life often. It took me a lot of years of study and ministry and journeying with people and living to learn this fact. So I wanna share it with you now, so if you're younger than I am, maybe you'll, you can get ahead of the game on this. I recently, and this is full disclosure here, began seeing a grief and trauma counselor myself and we don't often talk about that in church. We're like, oh, the, the people up front got it all together. We try to keep it all together, and sometimes we need to find help doing that. It's because the mission life that God called my husband and I to is replete with grief and loss on top of the normal life events that cause grief and loss. And so a lot of the grief understanding that I've brought to the table today comes from working with mission workers who go through these many... Um, manifestations of loss and grief. They lose their home and their culture, all the relationships tied to those. And, and when I say lose, it becomes distant and time makes those different than they are. Some people you'll never see again. Relationships change due to the, due to the transient nature, ugh, nature of mission life. Mission workers come and go and therefore there, there's always this grief and loss. Talk to any uh, cross-cultural worker and they will tell you that. That's a big part of what makes it hard. You always have this little bit of homesickness, plus you miss all those people that you really got close to and they're already back in their home countries. Or if you have to come off the field, then you miss the people you leave behind that you work so hard to build relationships with. And then you lose a sense of identity over time, and, and the loss of time is a real issue as well. When I think about it, we've been overseas for 21 years now, and I, I broke into tears talking to my sister today as I prayed, or not today, this week, as I prayed for her and her family over uh, FaceTime because I just, you know, I mourn that loss of time of being close to my family, just having them in the same area, the same country, the same continent, the same side of the planet, the same um, hemisphere. And that, that's an ongoing thing that I experience and still have to work through. Um, my mom said that, she said, um, 
I have a good chance of living long because my grandmother lived till she was 90. And I said, well, I think it's because I pray so hard. I said, if God, if you're gonna take me to the other side of the planet, give my parents long life so I get more chances to go back and spend with them. But I would be, um, I, I would be lying if I didn't say that, you know, this pre-grieving, I've been doing a lot of pre-grieving and grieving that I haven't been able to express because I didn't take the time to work through it as it was happening. You kind of just push it down. And in this pre-grieving that I've been feeling when I'm afraid that any time the phone could call, ring and it would be news that my parents have passed is really anxiety. So we talked about anxiety earlier in this series, but that anxiety of waiting for that phone call to come. And see, I was told early on that, you know, life's tough, get over it, toughen up princess. And I've been toughening up princess for so long that I got really good at it. And that's why I am talking to a grief counselor now. Because what happens is we close off. The problem with that is we close off risking new relationships because we're so fearful of, of that loss, that sense of loss. So we close ourselves off to protect ourselves. And then we get shut off from relationship because the reality is that grief can be quite isolating when other people don't understand it. Similarly, I would be remiss in a congregation such as this and people online if I didn't mention the reality of not just mission workers, but also immigrants and refugees and asylum seekers who we have many here in our country go through those same things, the loss of homeland, the loss of identity, that distance of family, and it's hard. So just keep that in mind when you meet somebody new. Don't give them a hard time because they don't have a good grasp of the language. Understand all that they're going through in their grief and loss that maybe you haven't experienced in being a native born to this country. So that's the unusual losses in grief, but we also have normal losses such as innocence, Anybody done adulting recently and have to buy your own toilet paper? That's a loss when you move out of home, and it's a loss for those that you leave behind. Some people lose a job or career through different reasons. That's a big loss, and grief is, is generated by that. Certainly failed relationships or divorce uh, or infidelity, that causes a great deal of grief in the people that we walk alongside. Moving, just moving from one place to another. You have to go through this grief process. It's, a, it's called a grief curve, you can look it up. <clears throat> or an accident or illness, or diagnosis of an accident or illness where your normal is just blown out of the water. I saw this when I did my MA research on uh, families dealing with uh, uh, developmental disabilities, and that diagnosis revealed to me that grief is a real part of that process. You, get a, you have hopes and dreams for a child that you don't yet know, and then when a diagnosis comes down the pike of developmental disabilities, there's a great sense of loss and grief over that. Grieve those losses, parents that have experienced that. And then financial security right now, our, our world is in, in topsy-turvy. You say, well, that's anxiety. But if you lose a job, you lose your financial security and stuff as well. And then personal security can be stolen from us through crime and... Um, just even being in places that aren't, that maybe were safe and are no longer safe. Midlife is a real, we say midlife crisis. Well, it's a crisis because it's where you're reflecting back on life and you realize I haven't achieved all the things I thought I would achieve and therefore we grieve that um, transition into getting older. And as we get older, then we grieve the loss of our youth. We're not able to do as much as we once were. Those are just normal life things. That doesn't have anything to do with death. 
But it causes us, that's what causes us to long for the good old days when life was a little less painful. In grief research, we know about this thing called disenfranchised grief. A lot of research has been done about this, and what it is is loss unprocessed, and it leads to, it gets buried and it comes out in harmful ways. That's why it's really important to grieve our losses. It results in things like poor health, addictions, broken relationships, fear and anxiety, anger, depression. A lot of that is just repressed grief. A lot of the things we've already talked about this series it can wear us down, and honestly, I believe it's probably uh, what underlies a lot of the burnout that we think we experience. We, we lost something, and we get burned out because of all the emotion that we feel that we don't know how to express, and it causes our faith to falter at times, and we lose hope. But we're talking about finding peace, and I want to tell you some secrets about the hope that we have as believers, and we're going to have a guest here in just a moment that's going to tell us how she worked through some of her grief. So what does the Bible have to say why is life like this? You ever wonder why life is like this? If we start all the way back in the beginning in the book of Genesis, at the, Genesis 3 describes for us the fall of man, but in Genesis 2 it says this, the Lord God placed the man in the garden of Eden to tend and watch over it, but the Lord God warned him, you may freely eat of every tree in the garden except the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. If you eat its fruit, you are sure to die. This reality is true for all mankind, whether they're a Christian or not. Death was passed upon on all men. We know that Adam and Eve were tempted and rebelled and brought a curse upon the whole creation. And we tend to focus on that death part. In fact, somebody said to me this week that Christianity seems to be all about death. We have a curse of death. Jesus died. We talk a lot about death as Christians. <clears throat> and so we talked about that and unpacked that a little bit. But there's more that was lost at that. So much more was lost. Innocence was lost. Their place and position was lost. Their environmental decay crept in. Food security was lost. Peace was replaced with fear and separation and hostility. Relational strain as they started blaming whose fault it was. Honesty, integrity uh, were called into question. They doubted God and shame passed on them. That's a lot of losses. Do you see any of that in our world today? I certainly do. You look around and it's like, wow, our, our society is marked by these things. But if we were to keep reading in Genesis, we know that there's a promise of a redeemer in Genesis 3. And then leaping ahead to Isaiah, we see a prophet describing the coming Messiah. Isaiah said this. He was a prophet. He said this about the, the coming Messiah. He was despised and rejected, a man of sorrows, acquainted with deepest grief, we turned our backs on him and looked the other way. He was despised and we did not care. That response that we have is why our world is in so much pain and turmoil today because a Messiah was to come and experience that grief and we didn't care. There's another but in scripture that I love and it's this one. But God loved the world so much that he gave his own and only son so that everyone who believes in him, Jesus, will not perish but have eternal life. God didn't let our, our despising and rejection keep him from sending his own son, his one and only son. The writer of Hebrews goes on to tell us why Jesus had to become this God-man. And it says this, because God children are human beings 
made of flesh and blood, the Son also became flesh and blood, for only as a human being could he die. And only by dying could he break the power of the devil who had the power of death. Praise God for that. Jesus himself said this to Martha, who was the brother of Lazarus, the man that he raised from the dead, where he wept. Just before he called Lazarus from the tomb, Jesus said this to his sister, Lazarus' sister. He said this. <laughs> I am the resurrection and the life, even after dying, Everyone who lives in me and believes in me will never, ever die. Now, we know that that's not talking about physical death. This side of heaven, it's talking about for eternity. And Martha said, yes, Lord, I know that. And then Jesus raised her brother. He added this promise a little bit further in John, in John 14. It says, in my father's house, I think we've got the wrong reference up here. This is the right verse, but the wrong reference, I think. Doesn't matter. In my father's house are many mansions. If it were not so, I would have told you, I go to prepare a place for you so that where I am, uh, I'm doing it for memory. And if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again and receive you to myself that where I am, there you may be also. Jesus promised that he was going away after his death, burial, and resurrection because he was the resurrection. He was preparing a place for us so that he can come again and receive us unto himself. Jesus' death, resurrection, and promised return brings life and hope both now and in the future. He's experienced that sadness and it can give us hope because we still have to get through the realities of this painful world in which we know that nature itself groans for redemption. So how do we do that? Here is one reality, as my guest now comes and joins me. This reality says this, God is our merciful Father and the source of all comfort. He comforts us in all of our troubles so that we can comfort others when they are troubled. We will be able to give them the same comfort God has given us. God himself experienced grief. And because of that, he knows just how to comfort us. And sometimes he uses our grief stories to comfort other people. The things we go through are useful. God uses those. He teaches us things about himself and he uses it in our lives so that we can help others along the way. So, Margaret, <clears throat> for this reason is the reason. You're, I think we've got you over here, yep. For this reason, I have uh, invited my guest to the stage. I knew about Margaret long before I met her in person. She had a profound impact on a mutual acquaintance of ours, Chad Loftus, many of you know Chad. Have a seat, Margaret. Chad and Erica are mission partners now serving in Thailand. Chad and Margaret worked as fellow chaplains at Heathdale Christian College right next door. I learned about Chad, or Margaret from Chad when he shared her story of loss suffered by her and her family. I realize that many of you have suffered great losses in your life as well. Oh, I'm gonna try to move this. So I'm sorry that I couldn't have all of you up here, but as I heard about how Margaret processed her journey of grief, I thought she needs to share this. <laughs> and I said, I asked Simon first, I said, because this is Simon's mom. I asked Simon first, do you think your mom would do it? He says, I don't know, you'll have to ask her. <laughs> and, uh, and when I told him, she said yes, she's like, really, great. So welcome, Margaret. Thank you for being willing to come and share a bit of your story. I know that it can be challenging. So I'm going to, um, I might put this over here in case one of us needs it. 
We'll put that, I'll just, just let you hold it. Yep. <laughs> and we'll get started. So Margaret, I understand that you had a granddaughter. Olivia, is it okay that I say her name? I've already said it. I'm sorry. That's all. Right. <laughs> Who was killed in a car accident suddenly? She was. Um, it was 13 years ago now. So she was only just coming up for 10. So in fact, as you said, she, we've been without her longer than we were with her. That, there, is, there is grief in that, isn't there? Yeah. Yeah. Yes, she was killed in a, a car crash, and her, two of her siblings were in the car with her, so mm. <clears throat> there have been long-reaching, far-reaching effects, obviously, on them. Yeah. yeah. We had uh, her, one of her sisters here with us for a while before she married and moved to the other side of the yes, city. Yes, we Bailey, did. If you, we did. Bailey, if you guys knew Bailey. When did you realize... Can we see that first slide? Now, I, I'm slipping, I slipped a few things in on you, I think. I noticed. In, in, <laughs> and, and to me, this was a, a school case or a memory box. I see a school picture and yeah. some different things. Can you this, tell me a little bit? This was when I reached the point where I knew that I couldn't continue working at Heastdale because working with children mm. who were hurting and working with my family, who was hurting, um, and buzzing interstate between the two uh, was proving to be too much. And I remember sitting with a child in the room one day at work, thinking, I can't do this anymore. Mm. And so it was giving up my job, it was giving up something I loved. Um, my children had been there. Um, mm. So I painted it, yeah. It's great. Not great because of the, but it's a great <laughs> painting. It's great to hear the story behind this painting because I looked through, Margaret had prepared a book of her, her journey uh, with paints and uh, she graciously lent it to me and, and she didn't have, she also shared a PowerPoint with me and it didn't have all the pictures and I saw this one and I wanted to know more about it. Yeah. So thank you yeah. for letting me slip that in. When did you realize that you needed, you, you've touched on that a little bit, but needed help processing your grief. You mentioned that, you know, mm. it was becoming too hard, you couldn't do it anymore. But, but what, was there a, a, somebody, a conversation, or what happened to make you realize I need help processing this? Um, I, I don't think I recognized I needed it to start with. Um, I, I think sometimes we're the last one to spot that we need the help. Um, I had um, quickly, within the first week after we lost Livy, uh, had contacted a, a grief and trauma counsellor who had uh, helped me through school um, with, with an issue in school. And I contacted him to try and get some names to find someone who can support the children. Um, and he said to me, if you're going to try and work, and you're going to be buzzing back and forth with family, you're going to need extra help. So come and see me. And I thought, mm, maybe. <laughs> um, but a couple of months after Livy died, um, yes, I went to see him. Yeah. And um, that started quite a long journey of several years. Now, as you began seeing your trauma and grief therapist, I understand you found it hard to put into words sometimes the deep emotional turmoil that you were feeling. And I have your first painting that you painted, but, but what did your therapist recommend that you do to help you get past your stuck place when the words wouldn't come? Yeah, I mean, this, this painting was done <clears throat> quite a way in yeah. a year after I'd started seeing him. So 
Um, I hadn't painted really very much for a while. Um, I, I think uh, he... I, I got totally stuck. I got stuck. I could talk about my family. I'm a talker. This is the timing problem. I'm a talker. Um, and... Uh, uh, I could talk about my family, I could talk about the grandchildren, I could talk about the legal case, I could, I could talk people mm. into the ground, I think. I could not talk about what was going on for me. Yeah. And you spoke earlier and said pushing that grief down, and that's exactly what I did. I pushed it further and further down because, I, I guess, arrogance in a way. I thought I needed to be there to support other people. So. You squash your own stuff away. Um, <clears throat> but it was damaging. It was doing me damage all the time. And, um, yeah, so, so I, I, my, my patient counsellor, I sobbed in his office, I dripped in his office. I, I used it as my cry room mm. for the first year, I think, at least. And uh, he put up with tissues and nose running and all of that. It wasn't glamorous at all. <laughs> um, he put up with all of that because he knew eventually we would get to do the work. Yeah. And, um, and I reached a point where I was ready to stop because I felt it was pointless. Yeah. And he said, I said, I can't, I can't get the words out. I don't think I'll ever get the words out. And he said, paint it. So we have an example of your very first painting that you painted. <laughs> yeah. Is there anything you want to share about this painting? Um, it, it, painting, it sounds worse than trying to say it. So how do you, how do, you do that? That was odd, I thought. <laughs> um, but he said, let's just sit on, on a hillside. We'll overlook everything. We'll look over the mess and we'll just sit there and we'll just wait and there's no need to rush and do anything, but I want you to paint it. So I went home, I got a little canvas, and I, I started putting the hillside on, and um, then what? <laughs> um, then a tree, why not a tree? So he became the tree, there was shelter there, I knew that. <clears throat> um, and then I thought, well, what do I do with the empty space? And and I looked at the fact that there's grief, too, in leaving your home country, which we'd done, and, and what had happened since. But I didn't know how to show it. So in the end, it's just daubs of color. And the bright colors were the good things, the supportive things, the wonderful people we met, the joy of children growing up and grandchildren. The, the dark colors were tough times and challenging times. Mm -hmm. and, um, you know, my husband's a tree in there, strong and helpful mm. and supportive. And so it, just, it, it actually, by the end of this little canvas, I'd got some words. Mm. So I took it back to him the next week, and he just said, talk to me about this. Okay. And, and, then, that, and that's helped where you get we went. The words. Yeah, yeah, that's great. I wish we could, had more time to unpack this in a bit more, because it, it actually helped in my preparation this week as I reflected back mm. on my own journey. Well, with this, as you, um, was there any significant, you, you mentioned the bright colors, happy things, and the dark colors, dark things. Was there any other significance to the colors or just artistic expression? It was just artistic expression, okay. really. It was just a way of finding a way to say something. 
I, uh, I chose, I had to pick and choose from Margaret's book of paintings, but I chose this because it, it represents a lot of different things. Um, this painting is titled Monster. What is mm. the monster here? That big, ugly, rat-like thing um, was the grief. Um, and I knew it was there, and I knew it was big, and I knew it was ugly, and I was terrified of actually looking at it. Mm. So holding this rock or whatever it was in place, it's like if I just hold this here, I can keep going. Yeah. But if I let go for a moment, if I weaken for a moment, mm -hmm. it will consume me. Mm. And, and that's so true. And then a couple of other emotions came through. Uh, you mentioned mm. shame and mm. expectations. I thought that was very, in a sense of failure. How, how so? Uh, you know, did you ever have a report that said from school that said could do better? Mm. Yeah. <laughs> okay. That's, that's pretty much what that is. But it's interesting that that one I did early on. I did it about the time that mm -hmm. I did these. But I didn't show my counsellor for over a year. Wow. Because I couldn't admit that shame, I, I was letting shame and expectation and fear rule me in mm. a way. And then the bottom one there represents anxiety, if I read it correctly, is that right? Mm. Yeah. So, uh, yes, it was. It, it was. it was that, what happens if I let this out? It, it's, yeah. it's, I will crumble, everything will fall apart, yeah. and I'm letting God down. Yeah. And people will see how much I'm letting God down. Wow. Now, I've got, uh, I, these are the couple that I snuck in for you. Um, <laughs> and this one is entitled, uh, Flaring Up. And I know that at one point in time, you're, Therapist, I'm going to tell the story about this other one because I found it profound. There's a lot to this painting. It's not just what it seems, yeah. but um, he told you to go out in a field and just let it all out. And you said, I, I'm, I can't do that. Yeah. So th you painted it instead, yeah. and I thought that that's, that's yeah. that. But um, what, what is this emotion that's being uh, displayed here? It's um, the uncontrollable within yourself. Or it feels uncontrollable. Grief can feel overwhelming, and it would flare up at the least moment. Anxiety would flare. I, I, I was getting, I was becoming really ill, and I didn't know it. I only knew the symptoms that I felt, and mm. I painted the symptoms, really. Mm -hmm. And then this next example of some of your work, what's going on with these? I, the, the title of this one was Three-Faced. What, what is Three-Faced? What's... Um, I just decided I would, I would paint my face. Okay. Why not? Paint my face and see where that took me. Mm -hmm. And as I started to paint it, I thought, this is a really dishonest face. This isn't my real face. This is my I'm out in public face. Okay. And just began to think that through and realized that I had three faces. I had one I hid from everybody. Mm -hmm and tried to hide from God. I had one I let my family see and, and close friends, and then I had one I used for outside. Okay. That. That, that would be such conflict of your, your identity, your yeah. I, I think I was getting crosser and crosser with myself because yeah. I couldn't fix this, you know. But you listened to a, um, a, a seminar, TED Talk. The te I mentioned it a few weeks ago, and I thought yeah. when I read it in your story, I thought, oh, yeah. Brene Brown gets around. <laughs> Brene Brown. She talked about um, vulnerability, and I was listening to that podcast. And um, while I listened, I drew. 
and, and just doodled and sketched and, and drew this, this character being vulnerable, mm. arms wide open, vulnerable. And, but then I realized I wanted to clothe her and I, I clothed her with trust and thought, <laughs> I'm not trusting anything or anybody at this moment. Um, and I put in courage and vulnerability and then started to put around, you probably can't see uh, distance, but the, color, the bright colors all around are words. And they're words that described how I really felt. Cold, um, alone, um, thinking about abundant life and that that wasn't what I was showing, courage, um, all sorts of different words that just came into my head. And bearing in mind I started this unable to use words. Mm. This was, a, this was quite an eye-opener. Oh, wow. Wow. Now, the next one that we have is hiding places. I, I, I put three up on this to make it challenging for you, but hiding places, which you revealed that you, you through your journey of, of self-discovery, really, with work with your counselor, this healing journey, that you'd been hiding since childhood. Is that right? Yes, and, and, and that was news to me. Hmm. Um, I... I realized I was spending a lot of time hiding at home. I, I couldn't work at this point, and uh, I was on medical leave. Um, and I spent an awful lot of time just under the covers, with my front door locked, on my own. Brian had gone to work, and, and I just hid all day. Yeah. <laughs> this is not good. <laughs> this is not good. And, um, and as I started to paint that, I started in that bottom right-hand corner. With, with me on the shut door. And then I started to think about that and think I used to, I wish my grandmother was here because I, she was my hiding place. I used to go and she, she was always good to me, always gentle. And then I started to realize how many different ways I'd hidden. I'd hidden in food, I'd hidden in drink at one point, I'd hidden in reading, I'd hidden in, I used to hide in the bottom of my wardrobe when I was mm. a kid. So to get from hiding out in the open, you said it was quite the long journey. Yeah. And, and it wasn't a straightforward journey, which I think this picture no. illustrates. <laughs> it's a it beautiful like. picture. In fact, uh, I showed this to one of my daughters, and they said, oh, can I buy that? <laughs> and uh, so, so I think there's a market out there for you, Margaret. But it, it was quite confusing, and, and it, it wasn't was. straightforward, and it was longer than it took, I believe, yeah. you said to me. Yeah. If we look at this next one, um, this next picture, we just have a few more. Uh, you represented grief here is this blackness, and I thought it looked just so oppressive. And mm. then you said at one point in time, that crushing wave uh, looks, you mentioned that it was a really low point where you felt like giving up. I, I did. I just felt that the journey was too hard and I wasn't convinced I was ever going to get better. Um, by now I got diagnosis of post-traumatic stress, anxiety, depression, I was on medication, and it just wasn't, it wasn't the me I wanted to be. And, and you had mentioned that you took these into your therapist's office, and that was able, you were able to talk about those things, is that right? Yes, though not that day. I took them in, I took this one into his office, I remember, and I just put it down on a chair mm. in mm. front of him and said nothing at all, because he knew. <laughs> um, and this is where a trust relationship is so valuable, I think. Yeah. Yeah. He, he could see where I was getting to before I even knew it. Yeah. And he was ready for it. That's good. And he held me to account. 
and made sure that I didn't do anything risky. Yeah. Um, came out of that, that valued connection, I think. Mm. A couple more. Th this next, um, <clears throat> as you journeyed through grief, and it continued on, a figure emerged and it became uh, quite a predominant. I noticed through, through your works it mm. became quite predominant. What does this figure represent? Um, well, it's me. Okay. I think it's, uh, perhaps it's anyone grieving. Um, you know how when either you're really cold or you're really in an exposed place, mm. there's a temptation to stand like this, yeah. you know, to warm yourself and, and feel a bit protected. Mm. Um, and I was doing that and realized that that, that shape is how I felt. Okay. It's made up of hearts. Oh, yes, there's a is. series of hearts in there. And, and I knew it was about love and it was about God loved me, he was holding me. Mm. I was squished in a corner, but he was still holding me. Um, and, and gradually, as, as I went through beginning to feel better and stronger and clearer, Mm. and feeling I was finding my way out um, of the mess, um, I was able to see the character stand up, the yeah. character push things out of the way, step out, yeah. and, and it was a mark of my progress in, yeah. in getting better, I think, yeah, that's um, really from good. the mental health issues. And I see, um, if we have the next pictures up, we see that uh, you, there we go, I, these are particularly interesting. What, what, um, what's going on in these? So I, what, the same loss obviously was felt by the whole family, not just yourself. So yeah. you, your husband, your yeah. children, yep. and siblings, the, yeah. their sib her, Everyone. her siblings. Yeah, so yes. um, how do these paintings speak into that reality? Um, this one more than that one, I think. In that one, I was just feeling that that it was, it was still all about me. Mm. It, it's very selfish. Depression's very selfish, isn't it? It's very self-focused. But, um, but in this one, uh, realizing that the grief character laid out was a bit like an oak leaf. Mm. The outline was a bit like an oak leaf. And it led me to think how we're all pieced into the same tree. And we're all... We're, we're, going through grief differently. Mm, mm. You know, nobody's grief is bigger than somebody else's grief or whatever, but um, we were together, we were sharing, and I didn't want a single leaf falling off the tree. Ah, oh, that's good. And, and I know that you'd said that um, you made a pact during this time to be honest with how you were feeling. Yeah. So that, that you guys could hold each other accountable and be supportive with each other. Yeah, we did. And then I wish I could show all of your paintings. I really do. So if you want to see them all, I've got your book back for you, Margaret. But you, um, you painted this one. And Stan and I visited Malakuta a few years ago, right after, a year after the fires. And we saw a mm. whole forest of this, uh, things that look like this. And I thought about that. It's a... Uh, Seeing, um, seeing this life return after something has just been burnt and devastated was really just fascinating to me. And then you have this mm. other picture that's entitled Hope and Trusting, Seeing Hope and Then Trusting. Mm. How has your journey, this is my question for you, how has your journey through grief impacted your faith? And then I have another question after that. I, my, my faith didn't diminish in terms of knowing that God loved me. And, and that he was who he says he is. 
mm. and it, it would it would all be all right in the end i would be with him and and but what was in between was the scary part yeah. um uh, i think i reached a point where in my faith i was content to say well whatever comes and i think i wasn't ready to say that before livy died I th- yeah um i had to go through that process perhaps mm. um but yeah, he makes things new. Uh, it doesn't mean we don't miss her. You know, yeah. we'd rather have her back. Um, but life is sometimes hard. And do you know we were singing about the mountain uh, just mm-hmm. before? And I was reminded of a, of a saying that all roads round the mountain lead backwards. Oh, if you're going to go round it, you're going to go back to where you were all the time. You have to, eventually you have to climb it. You have to walk up it and and god is in it yes um but but i I avoided i I try to avoid stuff and i think god's shown me Mm. avoiding stuff doesn't work doesn't work (laughs) and you said you said you um you did this but the reality is you did this didn't you if i were to ask you um because Stan says, what's the point of all of this? And I said, well, really, just to normalize the grief journey, the realities of the grief journey, and to give permission to grieve our losses, because I do believe that it's really important. But yeah. what encouragement would you offer to someone who may be just beginning a journey with grief? Hmm. Um, I think maybe work out how you're going to express it, because it, it's the pushing it down, as you say, it's the pushing it down pretending it's not real it's that that does us harm yeah jesus wept he let it out and then the closing down is what does us damage thank Um, you so much margaret for sharing your journey with us as um i let you go from the stage i'm just going to pray for you and pray for these people here and close our time in prayer before the the musicians sing us out and remind Thank us you. of some truths from scripture. Thank Thanks. you so much. Do you want your tash? No, tissue you can keep Didn't it. Didn't need it. For Margaret. Thanks. And her willingness to share with us and your patience as we, we took a little bit of extra time to do that. I wanted to read just one Psalm for you. This, Psalm 23, the Lord is my shepherd. I have all that I need. He lets me rest in green meadows. He leads me beside peaceful streams. He renews my strength. He guides me along right paths, bringing honor to his name. Even when I walk through the darkest valley, I will not be afraid for you are close beside me. Your rod and your staff protect and comfort me. You prepare a feast for me in the presence of my enemies. You honor me by anointing my head with oil. My cup overflows with blessings. Surely your goodness and unfailing love will pursue me all of the days of my life and I will live in the house of the Lord forever. Will you pray with me? Gracious God and Father, we thank you that you are our good shepherd, that you do lead us even through dark valleys sometimes, but you never leave us. You guide us, you protect us, and you're coming back for us. And we praise you and thank you for this truth that we can hold on to as your children. Father, I pray for anybody that's grieving here today that they may find hope and peace in the midst of that dark valley. And Father, as we uh, just sing more praises to your name, that they may touch our hearts in a deep way. Father, if there's anybody that needs extra help today, that they would have courage to come and be prayed for as we finish out this series. This We ask in your name and by your spirit.